When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves for Thursday, November 15th, the Why Is No One Having Sex Anymore edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of NPR's Invisibilia. I'm in the New York studios today with June Thomas, senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Hello in my face, June. Hello, Hannah Rosen. It's so nice to actually see you. Thank you. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hello. So a little announcement. Our show next week is a live show in Miami. Please come November 17th. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. We have a fabulous show planned with fabulous guests, Rebecca Traister and Celeste Ng. So we would love to see you in the audience. Okay, our topics for today. First, why is no one having sex anymore? Culturally, these should be boom times for sex. And yet, Americans are having less sex than ever. We discussed the New Atlantic cover story about the sex recession. Second, the right learns to weaponize Me Too, how it happened and what we think of it. And finally, white women as a voting block. How should we think about the fact that so many white women vote Republican? And then in our Slate Plus segment, June, you want to take it away? In our Slate Plus segment, we will be asking, is the tampon tax sexist? If you want to hear that and to support Slate's journalism, you should go to slate.com slash the waves plus and sign up for a two week free trial. All right, let's get started with our first topic, the sex recession. These should be boom times for sex. Kate Julian begins her cover story in the latest Atlantic. We have easier access to birth control, lots of apps, a lot fewer taboos. And yet Americans, and especially young Americans, are having less sex than ever. In 2015, the percentage of high school students who've had sex dropped to 41%, which means that most high school students are not having sex. Uh, so I'm very happy to say we have Kate Julian with us today. Hi, Kate. Hi, Hannah. Hi. So I got to say, I feel like this article explained not just sex to me, but like every <laughs> single thing that's happening in America. <laughs> Seriously, as I kept reading it, I was like, oh, oh, like I started to understand all the things. Um, but maybe we should just start with numbers. What what inspired you to write this? You must have come across some statistic or some some like, oh, my God, so much fewer people are having sex. So you cited a couple of the big ones. I think another one that's really impressive is that people who are in their 20s are like two and a half times more likely to be celibate than Gen Xers or baby boomers are. And that's just sort of stunning. Generally, it's also, you know, the case that, as you say, older people, by which I mean, like Gen Xers and boomers again, have gone, according to one set of research, from having sex an average of 62 times a year to 54 times. And that's sort of an interesting number because on the one hand, like a given person might not notice it. It's about once a week. But when you sort of imagine that across the whole country, it seems like it's sort of a lot of missing sex. I love that idea. I actually, my imagination went to like, where's the missing sex? Like we do like a podcast, like a murder mystery. Where's the, the next true sex? crime? Show. So my yeah. favorite sort of um, interview for this piece was with a woman named Debbie Herbenek, who's a sex researcher at Indiana University. And when I met with her, we sort of took this lovely walk on a May, you know, day in the park. And she sort of said, 
let's think of it as the lost sex pie chart. And I was like, what what are you talking about? (laughs) And she's like, no, let's imagine it. It's like not this, you know, not the same things are causing this for everybody. For different people, there may be different factors at play. And so we imagine it as wedges that add up to this missing sex pie chart. So that image is now stuck in my head for better or for worse forever. Kate, can I just uh, sort of press on one thing? Um, so in my very limited, very small world, like I hang out or communicate or Slack or whatever the word would be with like a lot of gay men, a lot of poly people, and they seem to be having a lot of sex. Their their apps are definitely being used for hookups, which, you know, maybe is a, like a, a decoupling of sex from relationships. You know, we can panic or not about that, but it's it's not quite universal. And then secondly, like is... Is this is all of this self-reported? Like it seemed like so much of it was kind of statistics that came from people kind of estimating their sex lives. Is it is it that people are just being more honest than they used to? As the has the loss of taboos, which I think we can all agree is definitely real, has that just led to people being more honest rather than all this all being about changes of behavior? Um, my sense is absolutely that. Some people are having more sex than ever. And I would even go farther and say that for people who are having happy sex lives, their sex lives may be better than ever. I kind of feel like this is sort of another case of divergence or sort of (laughs) increasing inequality where if you're doing well, you're doing really well. And if you're struggling, you're probably struggling more. I think we don't have great numbers on people who don't identify as straight. I say in the piece that this is a real sort of lack in the research there is a guy at Stanford who's sort of got an ongoing study called How Couples Meet and Stay Together, and he's deliberately uh, oversampling people who aren't purely heterosexual to get sort of better picture of what's going on. And his research so far suggests that people who are not heterosexual have much more active dating lives. And they probably use apps more effectively, just sort of based on my interviews and what experts I spoke to said. Um, So it's entirely possible that what I'm calling the sex recession might be mostly a heterosexual phenomenon. I think that's entirely likely, in fact. On the question of how the sort of numbers have changed and how we know what we know, it seems like if anything, the sex recession might be a bit steeper than what the numbers suggest because people have a more expansive definition of sex now than they did maybe 30 years ago. People used to be, the research suggests, more likely to define having sex as penis and vagina and are much more likely now to say that a whole range of behaviors constitute sex. So you would you would actually expect, given that, that like the number of people who say, you know, I've had sex in the past week would have gone up, not down. Mm-hmm. The second point on that is that the sex researchers have sort of, you know, been fine tuning the way they ask these questions. There is a real lack of data in terms of like ongoing studies that ask the same questions over and over again so that we can track answers over time. This is why the studies that I'm drawing on are uh, based on the general social survey, which is a really well-regarded study that's been running since the early 70s. The problem is it's not a sex study. It doesn't ask that many questions about sex, and we just don't have as much detail as we'd like to have. Kate, can you walk us through some of the factors that you think have led to the sex recession? I mean, like Hannah was saying, it really is kind of like it explains everything about modernity, right? Like, it's just like porn, the internet, 
online dating apps like everything adds up to this baby. plastic plastic <laughs> and i have to say it also was amazing how you dispense with the bullshit reasons i thought that was really smart it was just like everyone's told me this that helicopter parenting okay <laughs> let's get into the real shit and then you you do that it's like the japanese and porn but anyway talk about your favorite maybe we can start it's all japan's fault also porn people keep asking if i have a favorite and and truthfully like these things all interweave and that was really a challenge in putting together the piece because you know porn comes up again and again you know is is porn, you know, a factor because it's making people masturbate more and that's taking the edge off their desire? Or is porn a factor because it's it's changing the type of sex that people have, you know, for better or for worse? Um, so, I, you know, to just quickly rattle off sort of the, the leading suspects, one is sort of the rise of digital entertainment generally, and I would then put porn under that. So we know that over the period of time that digital porn has existed, the number of people who say they masturbate has for men more than doubled or who say that they've masturbated in the past week, I should say, whereas for women, it's tripled. Um, we can't see. Really? It's tripled for women? Well, self-reporting. And again, this does go to June's question. Are people more willing to admit it? And I would say that that's actually particularly an important question on masturbation. I sort of had no idea until I started digging into this, like just how taboo masturbation has been in our culture until really recently. There was a big survey in the early 90s or a big sex study then where they were doing in-person interviews. And one question they couldn't ask because the interviewers refused to ask about it was masturbation, which is wild. Like they were totally happy to ask about everything else, you know, anal, oral, this, that, the other. But they were like, no, I'm not going to ask somebody if they've masturbated. So, so, you know, yes, it may be that people are reporting that more. But it seems like it really has increased. And it's not, that's not just because of porn. That's also because of the sort of golden age of the vibrator. Several people called it that to me. But it's weird. It's like all these things add up to a kind of like isolate, like a view of the individual as a sexual isolate. It was like not just porn. It was porn that sort of spectatoring, yeah. uh, the lack of social skills, the apps. It was like I, I realized as I like I, clo- I closed the article, which is a bad metaphor because I read it on the computer <laughs> screen. But anyway, um, close the I, tab, <laughs> close the tab, whatever. It's like rose up from the page or the computer, this just general sense of like, we are all alone. <laughs> just like it, there's just such ice, like a sort of increasing sense of like the, the distance between me and the person next to me and like how hard it like intimacy at the end of this felt very like uh, ephemeral. No, that's not the right word. Fraught, just like fraught, fraught, fraught and like difficult. It was uh, yeah. the, the piece was more about intimacy than it was about sex for me. Um, in the end. Is that, what do you think about that? I am so glad to hear you see that, say that, because that's absolutely the point I'm driving at. I, th- I think that the real point here is like, how are we connecting with other people and are some variety of forces conspiring to make that more difficult for m- more of us? So did you, is that what you felt when you looked at the research, that it's not like sex, the mechanics taboo, like all the things we thought that sex was about all of these years, like that we had to clear away in order to actually talk about sex? Well, it turns out there's this other huge factor we didn't talk about, which is connection and intimacy and how central that is to sex for both men and women. Uh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that's really sort of tantalizing here is the idea that romantic experiences of various sorts may have become less common in adolescence. And this is a hard thing to track because there just haven't been a lot of 
you know, serious studies of it, people who are looking at teenagers tend to look more at like specific public health outcomes. Like, are they pregnant? Do they have a disease? Um, and less like, you know, did you hold hands with somebody, you know? Um, but, but I think absolutely, you know, it, it, it goes to this question of, you know, liking each other and feeling comfortable in our bodies. And why is that harder? I don't know. Do you know? (laughs) (laughs) I can't come up with anything but the cliche reasons. It's like everybody's on their computers. They spent, you know, all the things that we talk about when we talk about parenting. Well, let me ask, though, I have a feeling that maybe my response to your article, Kate, was a little different uh, than some other people's because it didn't seem all that bad to me. Like, (laughs) it's like it doesn't sound like people are unhappy. It, you know, obviously some of them do desire a, a, a partnership, do want the companionship of sex and intimacy. But a lot of other people seem like they were actually pretty content being single. Like it's not as bad to be single now as it once was, uh, maybe because sex can be decoupled from coupledom. Like, is this really also, I mean, the, the thing that's that's clearly potentially a problem a little bit down the road is, you know, the replacement you know, not replacing population, the population effect. But in this country where we have immigration, unlike Japan, you know, maybe not so bad of a problem. So I guess a bottom line, is this really so terrible? Well, you know, it's, it's not terrible across the board. There are definitely good things about it. I mean, look, I mean, the, the percent of people who say that their first sexual experience was like wanted or welcome has gone up. Like, that's a great thing. The teen birth rate has gone down. That's a great thing. People don't feel that they have to be in a couple. That's some sort of socially, you know, required thing. That's a good thing. The problem is that a really, you know, large number of the people that I spoke to feel like it's a problem, you know, the 20 somethings themselves. In other words, if I had heard from more people who were saying like, I'm not in a relationship and I'm not having sex because I'm living it up and doing all these other things that are personally fulfilling, I would think that's awesome. And for a good number of people, that was true. But for even more people, I heard things like, has it always been this hard? You know, was it this hard for my parents? I don't think that it was, was it? There was something very sort of wistful and plaintive about a a lot of people's kind of remarks on that. The other thing I would say is, look, if you are a sort of thriving single person with like rich social networks and lots of sort of resources of various types, I think now is probably the best time in human history to be single, right? I think that if you as I was saying before, sort of have less, then it's really challenging. And, you know, there's been some research by a guy named Eli Finkel at Northwestern who wrote a book called The All or Nothing Marriage, essentially sort of looking at some of the ways in which, you know, the people who are not in couples may really be struggling sort of across the country and at large. Um, People have put so many sort of eggs in the coupledom basket, even as it's become more acceptable to be single. um, it, It can be challenging if you don't have, you know, the rest of your life sort of working beautifully. And interestingly, it seemed like you were also saying that the same people who might be more likely to be happy being single probably have an easier time getting coupled up. They have the same advantages that allow them to sort of live happily there might, you know, make it easier to attract a boyfriend or girlfriend or or relationship. Um, The other thing, Kate, I wanted to ask you about, I was curious if the sort of longing for intimacy or the, the basic baseline unhappiness with the state of play, did that break down by gender at all? It seemed like a lot of the people who were most wistful, um, and maybe this is just the way I read it, but the, a lot of the people who are most wistful in your story were women. Mm-hmm. Was that mm-hmm. the case in your interviews? I would 
say that I, there was a high wistful degree among the women. Yes, for sure. <laughs> um, you know, but I think I heard things from, from some men that were really sort of surprising and a little bit poignant. Um, you know, people talked to me about like sort of wishing that women would make the first move. Sometimes it'd be heterosexual men, I should say, wishing that women would make the, the first move. And yet like, you know, women aren't comfortable doing that by and large still, which is fascinating to me. I, so I, I do think now is a hard time to be, and I hate to say this because I sort of sound like I'm tra- channeling Donald Trump or something, but I feel <laughs> like it, it is a hard time to be a young straight man. It really is. Um, yeah, that you, you, this wasn't a huge part of your piece, but the effect of sexual assault awareness and me too-ness on this dynamic, probably too new to measure. But can you talk about that a little bit? Like you talked about the difficult, how that has made it even more difficult. Like it's just created another layer of challenge. I can hear all our listeners being like, well, fuck you, but I'm just going <laughs> to say that so you can, no, you know, talk I about mean, that. But both men I talked to and sort of uh, people who have been talking to even more young men um, sort of sounded this note. I'm thinking particularly of a woman who teaches a sort of undergrad sexuality class at the University of Florida and sees a lot of men in her office hours and has a lot of male teaching assistants and she sort of talks to them about their sort of sex and dating lives a lot. And she said, you know, in the wake of Me Too, she's seen most of them sort of have really productive responses where they're re- sort of re-examining their own past behavior and trying to sort of learn from their, their female friends' experiences and sort of be more careful and really sort of just approach things kind of with a new spirit. And then she said there's like a minority who are having what she described as like a sort of unhealthy response of just retreating, like of just being scared to make the first move or express interest in somebody in real life. Um, and isn't that where Japan comes in? Like, you know, the men who have just utterly retreated from intimacy. And I guess we have it all over the place, like yeah, no I mean, fapping I, and whatever. There's right. like a million different strains of that. And in Japan, though, it's not about Me Tooism. It's just, it's you know, people don't really know what it is. And, well, know. I think a big part of it in Japan, I mean, the sort of Western press accounts always tend to sort of zero in on the sort of really wacky stuff, which frankly, I'm, I'm a bit guilty of myself. Um, but, but ultimately the sort of root causes there are economic, right? Like the job market changed there really dramatically in a way that left a whole generation pretty, um, screwed, sorry, poor choice of words. Um, (laughs) and you know, young men couldn't sort of afford to participate in sort of what was the sort of standard Japanese dating culture at the time. Moreover, you know, one person I talked to sort of about Japan and sort of, uh, sort of romance and, and, and intimacy, the history thereof said, you know, they had arranged marriage there until World War II. Um, after the war, it became sort of normal to meet people at work. You know, that was kind of the most common way that people sort of found a marriage partner. And as that fell apart, as like young men and young women weren't working together in a workplace, people didn't really know like what to do. Is this at all reversible? Like that, yeah. That's what I le- yeah. left thinking about. Like, is there anything we can tweak as a society or is it just going to get worse and worse? Totally. I mean, I, 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 I'm sorry if this sounds super earnest, but I really think that like sex ed needs, needs radical rethinking. Um, you know, as a parent of younger children, I feel like fellow parents are sort of in denial about 
like the fact that their kids are going to be exposed to porn in the very near future. I went to a like PTA meeting at my eight year old school last year where they had a guest speaker who's like a, a sex educator who sort of works in East Coast private schools primarily. This was a public school. And she had come to give a little talk about like, you know, your kid's about to head off to middle school um, and maybe getting a smartphone and, you know, what should you be sort of thinking and doing? Very sort of porn oriented, obviously. And she couldn't even give the talk that it seemed like she'd planned to give because there were quite a few people in the room who were like, my 10 year old doesn't know how babies are made. And she had to stop and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why would you think that in the age of the internet and so many other things, your 10 year old wouldn't know that. And so I do think people need to sort of realize that like, you know, really young people are coming to porn first and like should (laughs) be having some other sort of sources of information. Um, That's such a stupid response. It's like, that's the entire problem is that I have a 10 year old. He doesn't know how babies are made, but he knows all other weird sex shit. You know what I mean? Like they don't have any full realistic picture of it. So what they absorb is the, like there's just kind of horrible manga version, you know? Right. So it's like sex ed now might actually be relationship ed is actually what we want. Like we don't want. We want, want, yeah. And I mean, that's what they're doing in the Netherlands. Of course, the Dutch are doing it right. And you know, we should do that too. I don't think that's probably politically feasible, but I, I like Damn Dutch people. It's like, <laughs> pick it's like the Dutch, the Swedish, or the like, which one of them is it going to be this time? Who's got the number? Anyway, no, I agree. It's like relationship, intimacy, pleasure. You know, pleasure, Consent. image, you know, that 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 sense that like these images are fake, like all those things are necessary. And there is this problem that we keep coming back to whenever we talk about relationships these days of loneliness. Like they're, they're clearly I mean, that was another big thing that kind of bubbled up from your piece, Kate, of just like a lot of loneliness in our country and in our world right now. And, you know, this goes back to Robert Putnam and Bowling Alone of like, I was being maybe less social people. Maybe we work more, maybe we're on our phones more. We can all come up with sort of an explanation, but it does seem that there, and again, maybe it's about being more honest and just kind of saying that out loud. But um, what can we do to combat that? Because it does seem to be in many cases like a choice. Well, one thing that struck me is sort of how, if you are in a cycle of being single involuntarily and celibate involuntarily, you know, that that it really can be sort of self-perpetuating and really hard to get out of. Debbie Herbenek, the sex researcher I was sort of asking earlier, had good advice, I thought, when I just, I sort of asked her point blank, like, so let's say you're like a 20-something and you're not having sex and you just feel stuck, like, what should you do? And her response sort of sounds earnest, but I think it's good. First of all, it was like, take care of yourself, you know, like sleep, exercise, eat good foods, get off Instagram, get a massage, start getting massages regularly so you feel more comfortable with touch so that that's not overwhelming to you. I mean, these seem like basic pieces of advice, like read some books about sex, you know, read, you know, digest some information about sex that's like not coming through a screen. Kate, thank you so much for coming on the show. This article is so good. All listeners should read it. It will teach you so much about so, so, so many things. And thank you for writing it, Kate. Thank you for reading it. And thank you so much for having me. It was so fun to talk to you. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, let's move on to our next topic, the right weaponizing sexual assault. A few days ago, the White House implied that CNN correspondent Jim Acosta had placed his hands on a young woman who's an intern in the White House. And then they put together a video to prove it. In the meantime, the FBI is investigating a conservative activist for paying a woman to say that Robert Mueller assaulted her. The right, it seems, is weaponizing sexual assault, realizing that it moves people, so they're now using it against Democrats. We will discuss how this works and why it works and what we think about it. Let's let's play a clip first of the interaction between Acosta and this young woman who he did not Acosta. And then we will, <laughs> that was a dad joke. And then we will describe what's happening in the video. He's moving in. We need the people. They're hundreds of miles away, though. They're hundreds and hundreds of you miles away. That, that's I not an invasion. Should, honestly, uh, I think you should let me run the country. You run CNN. All right. And if you did it well, your ratings well, let me would be ask, much better. If I, if I may okay, ask one enough. other question, Mr. President, if I may, I, well, that's I was going to ask one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm Mr. President, me. that's enough. Mr. President, I had one other Peter, question, if go. I may ask, on, on the Russia investigation. Are you concerned that, that you may have I'm not concerned about anything with you the Russian investigation because it's a hoax. Are you, that's enough. Put down the mic. Mr. President, are you worried about indictments coming down in this investigation? All right. So, so Jim Acosta is asking Donald Trump a question about why he had called the caravan of migrants coming up from Central America, a, quote, invasion. He's pressing him. Um, and Trump takes issue with this. He has a long history with Jim Acosta, who we should say is a little bit of a grandstander. He's sort of taking his moment to be the guy calling out Donald Trump. So Trump starts going on and on about how he's from CNN fake news, and he tells him to sit down. And then this young woman who I have to say does look a lot like Hope Hicks for a moment. I was like, is she back? (laughs) Um, She's, you know, she's got dark hair, very sort of polished. Uh, She's an intern. She's wearing the, the GOP sheath, the, you know, traditional sheath. She comes up and she just starts grabbing the microphone away from Jim Acosta. So I first saw this on Twitter. Everyone sort of outraged about this. And I did find it pretty shocking. Like, and I, I, wait, what did you find shocking? That, that a member of the White House staff, I didn't know who it was at that point, would come up and just grab the microphone away from a reporter. That's, yeah, that's assault. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, I mean, that there, and there was a moment of rage, at least on my Twitter feed, which tends to be a lot of journalists. Like, why is this happening? I was just shocked at sort of like the chutzpah of the young woman. Like, I was a very timid intern and I cannot <laughs> imagine going up to a reporter and just grabbing a microphone away. There remains a question in my mind. Was she doing this on her own? Did someone say to her like, hey, like, go get that. Um, So anyway, the act two of this is that um, Infowars, which is sort of like a, you know, fervid conspiracy theory mongering um, website, uh, appears to have doctored or in some way altered a video that makes it look as if 
the motion of Jim Acosta's hand was much more rapid than it was in real life. So it looked as if he were, he were striking back at her when in reality it was just sort of like the angle that her arm went under his meant that the gesture that he was already doing could only be completed like because he didn't even see her coming. And it's, he sort of ran into her forearm. It, he did not strike her back. He sort of said, excuse me, ma'am. Um, but so this... InfoWars doctored conspiracy video then makes its way to the White House's um, official press office uh, to the two women who spin for Donald Trump both um, use this video to argue that Jim Acosta had struck at a woman. So Sarah Huckabee Sanders said that he had struck a woman. Wait, what were her exact she terms? She said he placed his hands on a young woman. Yes. yes. Um, and so they were taking away his press pass. Right, yes. right. So, so yes, they've now taken away his press pass. He's suing. And then um, Kellyanne Conway, another sort of master of um, manipulation, has also gone and used that narrative. So it, you're, you're right to call out the words place his hands, right? Because it's not struck exactly, which which has sort of domestic violence connotations. Placed his hands on a young woman is very sort of like Me Too insinuation almost. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, they're obviously not accusing him of sexual assault. It's like touching a woman in, a, in an inappropriate way. But there is something about the language that's being used there in this moment that just feels like... Um, they, there was this thought that like, okay, well, if we want the media to get off of us or to, to see their own hypocrisy, we must point out this this thing. Yeah. And I would also say that at that same press conference, Donald Trump took a question from Yamiche Alcindor, who's a black reporter from PBS. And he she asked him about his saying that he's a white nationalist. And he and he wouldn't answer the question. He just said, that's a racist question. That's a racist question. And that also felt of a piece to me. It's like using the, I mean, it's ridiculous to call, you know, calling somebody a racist um, who's clearly not a racist. <laughs> She's a black woman reporter. She's not a racist. Uh, you know, using the language of like liberalism in a sense of like calling people out when it is, even though there's clearly no justification for it, He's just evading questions, both in the case of Acosta and Alcindor. But there's some there is this what feels to me like a very conscious use of like the tools of of liberal call out. Uh, but but for sure. Them. But I guess my question, the thing that like struck ice in my heart about <laughs> this is like it is actually weirdly Orwellian to me Mm, mm, because the thing is happening so live that you can that that he has such confidence in these Mm -hmm, tactics mm -hmm. of looking at a thing that we're all looking at exactly calling it something different than Mm -hmm. it is I know that he does this it's just like the rapidity like the fastness by what I mean like like the the fastness with which this happened the way it is now completely like routinized as a tactic Mm -hmm. Um, it's so post-ideology. It's mm-hmm, like you can mm-hmm. just take a thing in the air, which you don't believe in and you hate and you don't buy into, and just steal the language of it and describe something as it with like a little tweak in the imagery. And it it, 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 it has a valence. Like it becomes real to some people. That's really, really weird. Like it's not sexual assault. It's right. nothing like sexual assault. He didn't – they didn't – like remove his press back. Nothing is actually on the earth true yeah. about what he's saying. And yet it's all a blank face. It's like a totally yeah. blank face. Like this is what's just happening here. We take away the press pass. Sarah Sanders repeats it. 
Many people in America look at the video and believe it. And it's like really creepy, this one. Well, and it also exposes just how little um, this White House actually believes in the values of the Me Too movement or sort of or sort of, you know, women being able to speak about this stuff. I mean, this has been a conservative trope, right, that women are and. Now I'm thinking of also the the Mueller incident where there were all these um, right wing conspiracy theorists who decided to go and try to pay women to say that they had been sexually harassed by Robert Mueller. This has been a conservative trope that, you know, women are just doing this for profit, that they're all lying, that they're coming forward. And this is just so deeply cynical to take that and to try to use it. You, You must you must truly believe that women are lying in order to be like, oh, well, the right, the left's doing it. We can do it, too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it just sort of exposes like a level of cynicism that I, I don't want to even think about. Yeah. Like everything's a game. Yeah. Like, they think exactly. Me Too is a strategy and then they use a different strategy. Like it's all just games. Well, and just the kind of the, the cheek of it. Like the fact is there were, you know, more than 100 reporters in that room there was video. Yes, there's this sort of doctored, you know, bit of a gif that make, gives this impression. But there's also the real video. Like there is evidence that it's nonsense. There's actual, you know, there are witnesses. There is evidence. And yet they keep on saying it. It doesn't stop them. But that the evidence like they're using that evidence like yeah, it's a visual. It, yeah. 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 But it's yeah. like a miss. Yeah. Like they're, they're actually, you know. I get, is that it, what a deep fake is? Like, is a deep fake when you... <laughs> I think it, literally a deep fake is when you just make it appear that a, a real person is doing a thing. They're not even doing... They're not even bothering with that. They're just having somebody, a real person, not doing a thing and saying they're doing the thing. That's just lies. Well, and this brings to mind for me the the infamous grab them by the pussy tape, right? Like, that's on tape, too. Um, and of course, the response from conservatives has always when when people say, well, you know, Donald Trump, you know, there's evidence that he is a sexual assaulter. People say, well, that you on the left, will you resign first? Like to your point about it being a game, it just seems like, you know, you you take one of your you sacrifice one of your chess pieces before we sacrifice one of ours. And this just feels like of a piece with that, that it's not like the journalists are not sort of investigating Me Too claims or sexual harassment claims out of some sort of quest for the truth, but what rather as you know, just part of part of this partisan game that that we're all playing and that they are tools of that. And that it's not about truth. It's about, you know, winning. Maybe it is about that. Anyway, I j- before I before I go there, um, that was my cynical thought. I, I was also, you know, the fact that it came up around the word invasion led me on some tangent of thinking, like, how did we get here? Like, it, you could kind of trace this history back to Gingrich and Frank Luntz and coordinated language. Like there was a moment when Gingrich sort of set out a game plan when talking he was in charge points. of like, like talking points, which is now a gentle word, but was then a, an act of war. Like we're all going to have these talking points and we're going to use words like invasion and we're all going to say the word invasion in every race across the country. And it's going to, you know, so it's so, so that's where it starts. And it seemed cynical back then (laughs) but that was more just like metaphors and language and it was being done by psychologists and kind of you know and now it's gotten so i guess it's just because we can doctor videos well but it's but that's the thing though it's the shamelessness of it that this that yeah they're they are using a video that that is clearly doctored if you you know take a step back um and it is just that he will, you know, he goes to a press conference, but he doesn't want to answer questions. And he, you know, doesn't answer questions. He just takes a different tack. Instead of answering a question, he calls a reporter racist and, and doesn't answer the question. Instead of answering a question, 
you know, he tells the reporters to sit down. It's like there's it's, you know, this whole thing of, you know, the norms have all been ripped up in this administration. But it is just this level of shamelessness and the scale of it is so much greater than it ever has been in the past. And. Yeah, it's it's, it's mind boggling. He wants us to be outraged, right? Like he wants yes, us to be he wants having us to be having this conversation instead of the conversation that you know the, the midterms did not go his way in the yeah. House, in particular, that yeah. a bunch of women and people of color were elected. Like this is this is exactly why he had that press conference. Can I ask you guys one last question? Do you guys feel like the left? There, there's sometimes I feel like the left, as it becomes more militant, is kind of being drawn into these tactics. Like, we, I do feel like we're in war. It's like the end of a certain kind of... There used to be this idea that the left was more about empathy and communion, and the, and the, and the right was always kind of, like, fight, fighting a war. Like, they were playing to win. And now I feel like it's not like that anymore. I feel like everybody is playing to win, and there is a kind of, you know, death of understanding. I mean, I'm not saying anything new this on Twitter no. every day about the end, the polarizing and everything, but I do feel like the left is waking up and like realizing this is war. We have tactics. But th- that is also, I think, creating almost a civil war within the left. Like earlier, June, you said, you know, like liberal tactics on Twitter. And in my head, I was like, no, those aren't liberal. Those are left. Mm-hmm. And th- that this has become this sort of struggle within people who, you know, would identify as progressive. Like I think leftist means one thing and liberal means another. Mm-hmm. And, and that people on the right tend to be just more comfortable with this kind of militant, yeah. like take no prisoners kind of thing. Where on the left, we're still, we're still squishes, you yeah. know, we, yeah. we aren't like sure fully. Yeah, I think that's right. All right, listeners, here's a very specific question we want to ask you. Look at that Acosta video and explain to us, was the intern ordered to do that? <laughs> or did the intern just do that on her own? That's the question the three of us can't figure out. Okay, let's move on to our next topic the white women. In the last few elections, white women have consistently disappointed us. (laughs) And by us, I mean progressives. They continue to vote Republican, even for very, very conservative candidates. And every time we're shocked anew. So we are going to consider whether we can kill off the white woman. That is, stop thinking of white women as any kind of monolith and parse what is actually going on with the white women. So, June, why don't we start by just laying out some of the numbers? Like, the one we do know is the 53% of white women voted for Trump. But we don't actually know that. Wait, so it seems like that number that is so widely circulated that we've all spent two years talking about was based on exit poll data and that subsequent looks at the real vote counting by Pew have shown that it was more on the order of 47 or 48 percent of mm. white women actually voted for Trump, which I think is fascinating. Mm. Are you the sister of Claire Malone? <laughs> have you been hanging out with Claire Malone? I spent some time on the Cook Political Report last evening, <laughs> guys. So, so I mean, I, I because I don't work for 538, I didn't actually go into the cross tabs there, as they say. <laughs> but I but I am interested that this um that we we base so much on exit polls, right. which have more to do with what people want to tell us about how they voted or with estimations than with how people actually voted. Yeah. Well, and, and what and so the the numbers that we're all kind of weeping over uh, in the most recent election that was just held last week, again, the CNN exit polls. So we're talking again about exit polls in three very key races, very high profile races in Florida, Texas and Georgia. of white women voted for Ron DeSantis, very right wing, very Trumpian Republican candidate in Georgia for the governor's race over Andrew Gillum, a progressive black man. 59% of white women voted in Texas for Ted Cruz over Beto O'Rourke. And in Georgia, 
I can't stand that number. It's so depressing. 75% of white women in Georgia backed Brian Kemp. Have over, you watched that guy's video? Exactly, he is such exactly. a dodo. Like, over oh Stacey Abrams, a dream candidate. But wait, we guys, you guys, Georgia's still being counted. I right. just want exactly. to put that yes. out there. Yes, that yes, I yes, also yes. don't believe the numbers fully there. No, I've, and I never, believe, I never believe polls of any kind. Which, 75%. Is. But yeah, but that's, that's the number in the exit polls. So it's the number that we have right now. And I mean, it, it's my, that is mind-boggling to me. Yeah. However... Yeah. I also think that that response is, you know, it, it's wishful thinking. It's 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 a little bit of fantasy that you know it's this yeah, whole like, thing that we often talk about on our on our plus segment of like we have these ideas of how white women or women are going to respond, and and it's based on in our wishful thinking. Yeah, I mean, is is this is the thing that we have to figure out? Right. Let's just give some comparisons there. So in Georgia, and according to that same uh, CNN exit poll, 97% of black women supported Stacey Abrams in Georgia. So just to do the comparison, that's 97% versus 25%. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But we should say that this is not actually a monolithic group, right? Like, Well, that's what we that's where we have to say. Like, I feel like this is where we got to switch our minds and stop expecting women to behave like our idea of what women are like yeah and we'll talk about why we should stop doing that Mm -hmm. but go ahead let's break down like the the more the smarter thing to do is just start thinking of women like you think of nobody says i mean we do say white men voted for but like you do think of white men in different categories so start to become more sophisticated in our expectations of what white women are going to do by breaking them down so noreen give me a little breakdown on how so we can start sifting in our heads sure i think there are two important ways to to sort of separate out white women the most important is college educated versus non-college educated. I mean, I think if you look at the electorate as a whole, that's hugely important. And there's a particular widening gap between women who have a college degree and who don't, who, um, you know, before the last couple election cycles, women with a college degree who are white also voted for Republicans by and large. It's only been fairly recently that they have gone Democratic and they have gone more and more and more Democratic. Non-college educated white women have gone hugely for Republicans, although less so than they used to. That that gap is actually... Wait, say that again. Say that more slowly. Non-college educated women... White women are, of course, you know, skewing the, the broader white women category towards Republicans. But in this election, they went... Less than they used to. Less than they used to. And they have moved more than white non-college educated men who are really doubling down on Republicans. Right. So there's there's sort of more movement among women in general towards the Democrats. You know, a greater degree among college educated women, but still there's a little bit of movement among non-college educated women. The other thing to look at is evangelicals. If you if you sort of break down the evangelical vote, that also just goes so heavily towards Republicans and non-evangelical women are less Republican. I, I mean I think it's the the thing to think about here is that we are all sort of assuming that women vote based only on gender question gender but also you know a lot of people have said you know women are voting to uphold white supremacy white women are voting to uphold white supremacy and i think yeah if you if you take the broader view about how these campaigns are run and what the way of life is that the republican candidates are um you know are advocating for 
Sure. But I, these women are not going to the ballot box and saying, you know what, I'm going and I'm voting against my gender and I'm voting for white supremacy. They're going and they're saying, no, I mean, I, you know, I, abortion matters a lot to me or the economy. And they, they are under the impression that the Republicans will, you know, help them with the economy, which, you know, is, is not true. If you are a non-college educated woman, it, this is just simply you are voting against your economic self-interest. So then I started to think about, okay, why are you voting against your economic self-interest here if you're a non-college-educated white woman? Why do you want to, quote, make America great again, right? Is it because you, like like Trump voting men, have a longing for the way that things used to be, right? Like, we all talk about, you know, life under the patriarchy is super bad, right? And, like, <laughs> I, I, I fully think that. I do not want to go back to... Um, the state of gender relations. But if you have like a pretty shitty job in the middle of nowhere that you kind of hate and you're working two shifts and like you, you know, and your man doesn't have a job if you have a man. Right. Exactly. You might say, you know what, like uh, 40 years ago, my guy might have had a solid middle class job and I could have, you know, not worked a job that I hate. Like, I think there are ways that the mythos of the patriarchy actually can appeal to women. And we just sort of don't want to think about that because, we don't it's not appealing to us but i also think that it's like you're between a rock and a hard place like you have this kind of nostalgic longing for a time when you weren't a single mother i mean just like yeah mm -hmm. blank as that right. on the other hand you don't totally buy on to what it means to be the kind of woman who votes democratic like you're just not fully bought on to that kind of urban yeah hillary the language of it it's very alien um, to totally. like the language that we take totally familiar and the ways of talking that we do just kind of organically and viscerally are just weird and alien to people. Like, like the word the patriarchy. The no. word the patriarchy. Or yeah, an, like. another word, which even I find annoying, like privilege. It's very, you know, if you are a poor white woman in a southern state, one of these states we've been talking about, I'm sure you don't feel very privileged. However, I have to say that I don't see a better explanation for why black women voted for Stacey Abrams 97% and 25% of white women voted for her other than privilege that black women have no choice. Or and they whereas, just are able to see more clearly what yeah. is actually to their advantage, whereas these women seem to be blinded by, these white women seem to be blinded by other factors. Yeah. I, mean, I, I would, the Georgia race really kills me because he's such a dodo. Like, I mean, the way he talks, he's such a dodo. And Stacey Abrams is so not a dodo. Mm -hmm. It's a little mysterious to me because a lot of conservative men who voted for Trump voted for Obama. Like, mm -hmm. there was a sense of like, oh, breath of fresh air, smart guy. Like, Obama did cross some lines. I don't understand why Stacey Abrams got none of that. Like, is that because she's a woman? Like, why people just weren't turned on by the newness of her? Like, the coolness of who she was the way they were with Obama. She did not get that wave from women. And I don't know why well i mean i think a lot of it is that she's black i have to because obama uh, was black like it's a she's a black woman there's something specific about she didn't get that kind of genius cool thing that obama got she didn't get that little like i have whoa to, factor that he got i have you know? to think that you know brian kemp's advertising where he was doing these ridiculous ads where he's gonna go you know round up some illegals i mean just in my truck he's in a truck. fucking yeah, exactly. moron i actually watched that out a bunch of times because my son loves it my little <laughs> son he thinks it's a joke it's like i'm in my truck he's like the dumbest like it's unbelievable his ad i got my good it's like really 
Okay, but let's look at another slice of Georgia, the sixth <laughs> district where John Ossoff so famously was in this um, runoff. He was mm-hmm. like the little golden boy of the Democratic Party. He lost to Karen Handel. You know, everyone was devastated. And then quietly, with very little media attention in the lead up, a, a black woman actually won that district. So Lucy McBath won the sixth district of Georgia. She's a gun control advocate. She's She's got a lot going for her. But, um, you know, these these and it's true that that district probably has a lot more college educated voters than Georgia as a whole. So maybe that's just this this phenomenon that we're talking about. But but, but there is something funky going on, I really think, in the Stacey Abrams, Brian Kemp race that might have to do with who Stacey is, but also might have to do with who Brian Kemp is, which is someone who (laughs) is very into voter suppression, like as a calling. Right. And when, you know, the things maybe the things that, you know, that you find absolutely mind-blowingly terrible. I mean, everything's calculated, right? Everything, especially in political ads, is calculated. It's not aimed at you. It's aimed at the people who are going to respond to that positively. And apparently they, you know, maybe he really doesn't have a truck. You know, maybe like maybe it's all fake, but it's a, it, that's the <laughs> That'd image. That'd be awesome if he was driving a Tesla. <laughs> <He was> like, <laughs> but like, you know, he he he's he's reaching out to the people he can win over and, and they, you know, they're the people who will respond to that. You know, when you say that, I realize that I read off of it Dodo, but what other people read off of it is Renegade. Like he does, like what he's trying to challenge is like, I'm, I'm going to do what I want. Like people might find that appealing men and women. Like I'm not listening to those other people. Like I'm just doing what I want here. I'm saying what I want. I'm telling the truth. Like the same thing, you know, my mom likes about Trump. Like mm-hmm. I'm just saying it. He just mm-hmm. says it. I don't mm-hmm. know this bullshit elite, whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, and and, okay, so this gets back to you talking about how the language of the Hillary land might be super unappealing. So let's talk about the let's talk about the let's talk about white women thing on Twitter, right? Like this whole meme where people are like, "White women, you failed us again." Which, like, if you look at the numbers, yeah, like if you and you're a progressive, of course, disappointing. But there's there's a sort of um, it's it's if you are one of these women who is a Republican, maybe you. Maybe you're sort of on the fence. You are disappointed in Trump, whatever. You like could be won over. And then you see the Women's March like tweeting out like white women, you need to do better. You might be sort of turned off. Right. Mm-hmm. Like and and I just have this general feeling that people getting on Twitter and talking about how, you know, um, particularly white women getting on Twitter and talking about how like, you know, we need to do better. It's mostly about sort of like almost patting yourself on the back and showing to your own peer group that mm-hmm. you are correct, that you are doing the right thing. And not only are you voting the right way, but you are properly excoriating other women. I, I just don't think that's productive, right? Like, I don't, I don't necessarily think we need to like, you know, run ads about how coal mining is great. But I think there are, there have to be ways to sort of actually think about winning over that group of women and getting them to think about what is in their actual self-interest rather than just sort of saying like just be better just like change well step one is to divide the white woman demographic like you were saying like if there's some percent of non-college educated white women that are moving towards certain kinds of democrats which democrats why Mm -hmm. what's their motivation how are those democrats talking like there must be ways to cleave in here because I actually do think it's a little bit sexist to talk about like women, like to talk about the giant block of voters as women yes. or to be horrified <laughs> if mm-hmm. women are Republicans. That's like like 1972 to me. It's yes. like women think all kinds of things and vote all kinds of ways. And it's just like, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, should we is this is this just false thinking? Should we just accept that? You know what? There are women. Many of them, <laughs> really almost all of them, white women 
who are just Republicans. Yeah, it's like, why do women vote Republican? When I see that headline, I'm like, because they're Republicans. Right, exactly. That's the answer to why they voted right. Republican. Well, I think this became a meme because everyone was horrified by the idea of any woman voting for Trump. Like, that's yeah. what it was. He mm-hmm. was just such a, uh, he was considered to be outside the norm of the Republican Party. Obviously, the Republican Party has sort of reshaped itself around him. So that's less useful than it used to be. But I think that's where this became a little bit of a thing. But don't you think it must be assault is moving people? And there actually might be some way to talk about sexual assault because that's a pretty universal experience in a way that people can hear it. Like, I'm not saying we have to change our language, but if you're just trying to win a race, like you're just in Georgia and in the South and you're trying to win a race, is there a way to like speak a certain way? Because I think assault is one not to give up because everybody has that. It didn't help with Trump. I mean, you know, that was baked into the election of Trump that, that, you know, Grab him by the pussy. I mean, that's exactly what that is. I mean, I, I think, think people I mean, I think we see it as a clear thing, but I think people are like he was just like it would locker room locker talk. Room. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think that's not necessarily such a great example, even though I used it earlier in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I but I, I, I do think like, yeah, it's just the focus group. If you're if you're a Democratic strategist, the focus group cannot be your your own friends. Yeah. You know, yeah. it has to you have to figure out how to actually talk to people, not just about sexual assault, like economic issues. Mm-hmm. I think I think that the Democratic Party has done a really bad job of explaining how it is in people's self-interest to vote for them. I mean, certainly, yeah, they do talk about they do talk about economic issues, but wh- whatever it is, the language is not getting through and there has to be. Yeah. I, I just don't think you should give up on sort of telling people that they can be represented better. Yeah, I mean, it's so confounding. It's the what's the matter with Kansas. If I look at a single white mom in Georgia who's struggling, like she needs child care. She needs reliable child she care. Health care. She, she needs, needs health care. Not to, you know, she needs pre-existing conditions to be covered. Yeah, she needs protection from, you know, probably men in certain ways. Like, they're just like, we think of these as things that Democrats would more easily provide. And yet it's really not how the message is coming across. Right. Well, the message is coming across through Fox News where she's hearing that like immigrants are taking her jobs and and that the inner cities are ruining America. And and so like she's absorbing that message, which does have major undertones of race. Right. Like that's where that's where the sort of the. the you know, upholding white supremacy element does come in. Yeah, but this is like our conversation with porn or our second conversation about about that stupid video. It's like I get so overwhelmed when I think about that because it's like, well, but there's a reality here, mm-hmm. guys. It's like I'm not sure that that's a relevant yeah. thing to say. And my mother, sorry, my focus group of one, she <laughs> literally is now at the point where she just says the same things that are on Fox News, like in intimate conversations. And you can just hear how the line works mm-hmm. so well and mm-hmm. directly. It's like human beings speak in those talking points that, you know, Newt Gingrich used to pass out in the 90s. Yeah. All right. Well, on that depressing note, guys... <laughs> Our message to white women is just be yourself. You do you. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Recommendations. Noreen, you want to go first? Sure. Um, I'm going to do a sort of log rolly one for a New York Magazine story that I just think is great. Reeves Weideman, who's a writer at New York Magazine, spent like... Actually, in the end, he, he th- spent three years, although that was not, you know, he was not working on it the entire time, investigating a suburban sort of horror story. This family moved into their dream house in Westfield, New Jersey, and began getting creepy notes from someone who just signed it, The Watcher. 
um, and yeah. they could sort of see what was happening in the house. They talked about wanting the young blood of their children, about having watched the house for years. They got a series of these letters. They never moved into the house. They began to... Um, you know, the, the neighborhood sort of turned on them and said that they had sent the letters themselves because they'd gotten in and over their head on the mortgage and they're just still losing money. They are they never moved into the house and the neighborhood totally turned on them. It's like a horror story about a creepy person, you know, sending anonymous notes. But it's also a horror story about the way neighbors kind of care more about property values mm. than their neighbors, wow. perhaps. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just a great magazine piece, The Watcher by Reese Weideman. And then one like non-log <laughs> rolly uh, recommendation, Dory Greenspan is primarily known as a baker. She writes a column for the New York Times magazine. She has a great writing style. She lives half the time in Connecticut and half the time in France, which is just sort of like aspirational. <laughs> um, but she just came out with a cookbook that I am newly obsessed with called Everyday Dory that is mostly not desserts. It's sort of like how she cooks for herself and her family. And um, it's like, it's just the way that I want to cook right now. It's, you know, it's like easy chicken and it's all flavorful. And, and then she does have some desserts if, if that's if that's what you're going to Dory Greenspan for. Um, but that's yeah. interesting. I would see a Dory Greenspan food cookbook and be like, she doesn't do food. I know. That was my reaction, too. I was like, okay, like, do I trust her on this? But yeah. the recipes are really good. And they're not, I actually don't really like to cook French food. And they're not super Frenchified. Like, there are a few things that are like, you know, potatoes and a crust and cheese. And you're, <laughs> you know, and you're kind of going to skip that. But there's actually, <laughs> there are a lot of sort of Asian flavors. And, and it's like, it just feels like the way a real person cooks. Interesting. That Watcher article just took over uh, Slate Slack. Oh, good. So, oh, good. Yeah, it's it's one that, that people really want to talk about when they've read it. <laughs> um, okay, <clears throat> I really have only been doing one thing. What is that one thing, Hannah? Like listening to the same song on repeat over and over again. You what know is that get? song? It's called, it's Girl Blunt. Um, you guys don't know that song. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce her name. Is it Licky Lee 47? Oh, yeah, I like her. Is it Licky Lee? Does anyone know? I've never said it out loud. <laughs> All right. Maybe it's Licky Lee 47. Maybe somebody younger than me can correct me. Please do, listeners. But I, I'm just I'm just telling the truth here. Like <laughs> when I do recommendations, I try and think like what has given me the most pleasure besides that sex recession article, which we already <laughs> talked about, which was so good. But it w- it's just been listening to Girl Blunt like 432,000 times. Do you just like play again, again, repeat, repeat, repeat? Yeah. Just over and over? Because make- I had to do reporting drives this week, and I was like, okay, just one more time. Hannah, I have a recommendation that's personal to you. I wasn't going to do this for our audience because I don't know if it's for everyone. But do you know the rapper Cupcake? Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> I listened to Cupcake and I was like, you're speaking straight to my heart. I realize I'm not your target audience, but just between me and you in this small bathroom, you are my girl. But don't tell anyone, Cupcake, but it's just me and you here. Yes. (laughs) Anyway. Well, one uh, for yet another week, I'm going to uh, recommend something that I thought was just fine. Good. It's what I've watched and I watched the whole thing. it's the Bodyguard on Netflix, um, which is mm. was I think I only think it's fine because it was really, really hugely praised in Britain, and you would think it was like the greatest TV show that ever existed. They were doing like you know, whole newspapers were doing recaps, you know, the the second that the episode ended, and 
I didn't think it quite justified that. I do like the the writer of the show, Jed Mercurio. He also is responsible for Line of Fire, which is a really great series uh, that just gets better and better with every uh, season. Um, and it's about uh, a, a bodyguard, um, somebody who's assigned to protect the female Home Secretary of Britain. That's kind of the... The interior, not in the interior secretary, like the person who's in charge of security and police and and uh, immigration and all those uh, hot button issues. Uh, a uh, an office previously held by Prime Minister Theresa May, I will note, and she's very much a, a very conservative, very like warmongery type. And it's kind of you know it gets a little bit uh, uh, conspiracy theory ish, but one great part of it is that there are some really fantastic. Roles for women, once again, as with my last week's recommendation, even in a sort of just a little bit better than good show. If you have really good parts for women and really kind of good roles for women, like the the role that they have in the show, if it is crucial, if it's one that's more typically played by a man, then I'm I'm kind of there for that. And I, I definitely was worth watching all six episodes, which I did in great rapidity. I am going to watch it, and I'm just, you know, we we talked about possibly discussing mm. it here. Is does she feel to you? I mean, she's she's she's, you know, it's like Veep. She's she's a new type in the sense that she's kind of bad behaving and unappealing, like uh, in a certain way. Like she's, she, I mean, she's very much not like Selena, but yeah, in the sense that she's uh, not a warm, fuzzy character. Then not yes. always making super ethical, no, know, no, no. Maternally, but, but she's decisions. also she's a politician, and that you know, in that sense, she's very be- she's a very believable politician. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I I actually thought that 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 role was a very interesting one. All right, excellent. Well, that is our show for today. Thank you, as ever, to our producer Daniel Hewitt, to our production assistant Alex Barish. Also, um, please do come to our show next week in Miami, Girls Trip, November 17th. It, you can get tickets. Actually, it's not tickets. It's a free show at Slate.com slash live. We are going to have fabulous guests, Rebecca Traster, Celeste Ng. And uh, yeah, it's going to be an awesome show. Can I just jump in to say also, if you are in Australia, if you are in Melbourne on the 5th of December, come see me at the Wheeler Center talking about podcasts. Woo! Cool. So yeah. jealous. Um, so yes, we would love to see you there. Uh, that is our show for June Thomas. <laughs> Maureen Malone, I'm Hannah Rosen, and the waves will be back next week in Miami. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.